0: The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards.
1: It's the Enviro Show together with me, Nancy Richards. I have Kim Winter and I have Derek Fordyce. And if you'd like to be part of the whole show, you're welcome. You can give us a call on 0892 10 2010. 0892 10 2010 and don't forget just while i'm on numbers and thereabouts um if the program is podcast so if you'd like to have a listen to it at a later stage if there's something that really got to you and you'd like to listen once again check our site it's www.safm.co.za and go to the podcast well let me not uh, waste any more time let me tell you what lined up for the show today First up, we're going to be talking to a gentleman by the name of Isio Manzini. He's a professor of industrial design at Milan Polytechnic. And he's said to be a leading expert on design and sustainability. Well, he's here in Cape Town to take part in the World Design Design Capital Design Policy Conference, which launched tonight, starting tomorrow. And we're going to be finding out from him just how much of a difference design really can make in terms of sustainability. And then, as you will surely know, today is World Food Day. In this uh, food security month, which let me give us all pause for thought, well, we're going to get some data on our staple, our South African staple food, maize. I'm going to be talking to Peter Johnson. He's with the Climate Systems Analysis Group at the University of Cape Town. It'll be interesting to hear what he's got to tell us. Then after that, Zinzi Mgolodlela, she's with Woolworths Transformation. She's going to be talking us through the principle behind Eduplant. They've been going for some time, but certainly if you're going to be teaching people how they can get uh, their own food, make their own food at a very early age, what a good idea. And after that, it's our BioBullet series, the second in our BioBullet series, in which Professor Antoni Milewski of BioEdge throws a bit of biological light onto cancer. And it is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, as you know, so it'll be interesting to hear what he has to say on that. And to close, our green goodie tonight, focusing very simply on soap. Soap that is 100% naturally made. going to be chatting to Earth Mother herself. She's Yvette Abrahams, Dr Yvette Abrahams. And don't forget, just while we're on the subject of green goodies, if, if you've maybe got a green product or a service and you'd like to share, a, share it with us, you'd like to tell everybody about it, this here is the spot. So you can let us know. You can send us an email on enviro at safm.co.za or if you want to do it in the next hour, you can give Kim a call right now, 0892 10 Incidentally, check our Facebook page because Kim has put up all the info about everything we're going to be talking about tonight on that. And that's the Enviro Show on SAFM. Just going to give you a couple of little bits of eco-info before we crack on. Well, food, it's a food uh, food world, food day today, obviously the focus of today. So I'd just like to quote you this little piece, uh, a line or two, from a piece in the paper today by Dr. Mornay Duplessis, who is CEO of WWFSA, in which he looks at the, um, the organisation's biennial, biennial Living Planet report, comes out every other year. And it, he, said, he says that the Living Planet Report 2014 includes uh, sequential information of a sample of more than 10,000 vertebrate populations of over 3,000 species across the globe. And he says that in his time with WWF, the, uh, the the report has shown a steady decline. This year, the index shows a decline by 52% between 1970 and 2010. In other words, he says vertebrate species populations are on average half as healthy as they were 40 years ago but he goes on to say our personal and economic well-being is also closely tied to the health of the environment that which supports our need for food energy and water over and above this the environment absorbs our excess mopping up many of the waste products that we generate and unfortunately we are now outstripping the rate at which natural systems can keep up This leads to an ever-increasing accumulation of waste products, including carbon, in our atmosphere. Sorry about the scaremongering. I think it's maybe more uh, awareness-raising rather than scaremongering, but something to think about. That's WWF's uh, 2014 Living Planet Report. And also, more specifically, on World Food Day, I saw this appeal by Bishop Zipo Zikle Ziwa. He's the president of the South African Council of Churches, amongst other things, and he says, plea from the heart, this one, he says... I write as the faith leader on the eve of the World Food Day and out of deep concern for the ecological crisis that threatens to bring us and the whole of creation to the brink of mass suffering and destruction. My appeal is that we pay special attention to this and request all people of faith to pause, reflect and act as stewards of all that God has created. Just sharing. You're listening to The Enviro Show. Stay with us.
2: Triennale Design Museum, in collaboration with the Italian Trade Agency, presents... The New Italian Design Exhibition. World design capital of Cape Town welcomes this internationally acclaimed exhibition. Visit us at The Lookout, V&A Waterfront, from the 5th to 25th October daily, from 11am to 7pm. Admission is free. The New Italian Design Exhibition. Ah, bellissimo. Raise your hand as an SIBC education initiative designed to keep you informed on how you can do your bit to make sure that all South Africans get the best possible education. Why? Because our future needs us. And a great future begins with big dreams. We all dream. When our eyes are closed and the world is dark, something flickers inside. Is it a picture of you one day solving a global problem? Or you're all grown up and working with the sick? Or even though some call you old, you still want to try something new? Raise Your Hand believes in your dreams because they can be real but only if you make the first move. Raise Your Hand is working with communities to take education and dreams to the next level. Teachers, parents and learners are taking control of their destinies. So, what would you do? Start with one simple action. Raise Your Hand. Wherever you are, whatever your dreams for education. Apply for higher learning today. Your future awaits. Raise Your Hand, another proud initiative brought to you by SAPC education while you're listening to this someone is targeting your customers world-renowned sales expert Jeff tool assisted shell global solutions to increase contract size by 800 percent and tripled sales revenues imagine what this could do for your company attend the fifth annual think sales sales leadership convention 22 23 October see Jeff live in SA plus blue ocean strategy specialist Gavin Fraser Nick Mallet and 16 local sales experts seats are limited Book at Join us this Thursday on Top Billing as a farm girl turned to leading architect gives her son a country life close to city lights. Presenter search finalist, Karjil Bhagwandeen lives her dream. Online fashion retailer and mother of two, Taneo Ranaka makes a success of the virtual world and South African storytelling inspires the latest food styling. That's top billing, Thursday night, 8.30. Repeat Sunday at 12. Find it on 3.
1: The Enviro Show. Well, first up here on The Enviro Show, Professor Ezio Manzini. He's said to be one of the world's leading experts on sustainable design with a focus on scenario building towards solutions encompassing both environmental and social quality. Well, he's also the director of CIRIS, that's the Interdepartmental Centre for Research on Innovation for Sustainability at Milan Polytechnic, where he focuses on innovative processes in the system of production and consumption, in particular on the relationship between product strategies and environmental policies in the perspective of sustainable development. But the good news is that he's in Cape Town right now. He's going to be taking part in the Design Policy Conference, which is opening at the Cape Town Stadium tomorrow tomorrow talking about traditional and new design economies, but we have him on the line right now, which is wonderful. Professor Manzini, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you to you. Welcome to Cape Town. Is it your first visit? <laughs> no, I'm lucky enough
3: because uh, I am for three months here as a visiting professor of the CPTUE, CPUT. Okay. And so I've been here since uh, July with some interruptions.
1: Okay, well, welcome, and, I'm, and I hope you've been enjoying your stays here in Cape Town. Um, Professor, can we just find out a little bit about you? You've obviously been doing this for some time, you have great wisdom and experience, but what's been your background?
3: Yeah, well, my very, very <laughs> far away background is i am an architect and engineer. But afterward, I've always worked at the, on the crossroad in between uh, design and uh, environmental and social issues. This is what I did. And I did it mainly in the Polytechnic of Milano for many years. And since uh, five years, I'm a kind of a nomadic visit professor, as I'm here now in Cape Town. I've been in China, in mm. America, in London. So I try to have a very general view of what is happening yes. on both the sides, the side of how design is changing and how the social issue and the environmental issue which we are dealing with are changing.
1: Yes, and how perfectly interesting that you mention all those different countries for whom the concept of design and environment must be so very different. I mean, I'm thinking of China, I'm thinking of America and Cape Town, and how all our circumstances and our environments are so very different. Yes,
3: and not. Mm. You know that globalization is a very complex issue. On one side, we have uh, some problem and also some opportunity that you can find that are more or less the same everywhere. And at the same time, of course, and I will say luckily, there are very strong differences. But I will say that uh, it's most important now to see what are the common elements, because this permit to make some confrontation and to learn each other. So both uh, what we intend for design today is very far away from what has been the history of design and what uh, most probably also the people listening now are thinking that design is, and also the way in which we deal with environment is changing environment and social issues that now we, we know very well that you cannot separate the two, so social and environmental issues tend to become the same thing.
1: Yes, it's interesting, isn't it, how our language has changed? I mean, I think of Milan, and I think of design, and I think of the Milan Furniture Fair, and now we're talking about the environment. And, and you know, not so very long ago, the world, the word environment, already meant something quite different. And you know, so the whole the whole landscape of design and environment is changing. So explain to us, in because as you say, it is very complex. Uh, explain to us how design and the environment can be married and, and work towards a better place?
3: Yeah. <clears throat> Let me start from the design side. That is the one probably I can bring more original contribution. I'm sure that the majority of people, when you say design, think they design done by some professional and dealing with some very precise object. That could be furniture, could be a washing machine, could be a car, could be a lamp. And you was referring before to what is very famous for Italy in design, has been mainly related to a very precise set of products. But in the since, uh, let's say, well, two decades, uh, the meaning of design progress has changed. And in some way, if you want to get, get back to the origin, because design is not a profession, design is also a capability that every human being, in some way, has. So design become uh, an attitude, and also some tools, and also a culture that can manage, uh, can try to face many different problems. They could be not only, of course, it remain to design products, but it's for sure also to deal with services. But it also could deal with the uh, generating some strategy. But it could work with some uh, city, for instance, Cape Town is a good example of that. It can work for some public institution or even for some uh, NGOs or for some association, even for some party. So it's an attitude, it's a tool, it's a culture that can be applied to every kind of uh, complex problem.
1: Mm -hmm. Sort of creative thought and conceptualizing rather than something tangible and decorative.
3: Well, at the end you can have something tangible in any case. I'm not saying that everything remains. abstract. I simply say that it's not, once upon a day when you say design, you thought to a very precise set of artifacts, as I said, lamp, washing machine, uh, car, motorcycle, fashion. Now you can imagine that the design attitude uh, can be applied uh, to every complex problem. So uh, if you now we are in Cape Town. You know that there is this World Design Capital. If you look to the projects that has been un, taken under the umbrella of the World Design Capital, you can have a very lively view of what I'm saying. So, what I'm saying, if you look to the projects, you see the majority of the projects are projects that are more kind of system, kind of interventions, yes. kind of communication strategy than uh, individual products.
1: Yes, which, as far as I understand, is one of the reasons why Cape Town was selected, because there was so much possibility for strategizing as opposed to just producing nothing. if you
3: you want, I don't know why it Mm. has been selected. But I can say that, and this is also one of the reasons of my interest to be here, that uh, it's really for for the the arena of design. This uh, design capital in Cape Town is very meaningful by many different points of view first of all because as I said if you look to the project the projects are really very in my view advanced it means uh, that there is some design capability spread on very different kind of activities secondly because uh, very wisely the organizer has accepted as a design project also some projects that have not been designed by professional designers and this is also very important because when we talk about design now it's not only they talk, they, what I call the design expert, that in my view they are still important and I hope that will they will remain important. But the design initiative can be developed by many different kinds of actors. And also this is what, something that you can see in the, in the project of the World Design Capital. And third, uh, is symbolically, uh, to have the center for one year, the center of design in a place that is so far away from the normal uh, Mm Western-centric idea of design is very important. It's a kind of a... Well, I I am European, so I could regret about this, but I find that it's uh, very important that uh, in some way the world of design now is really the whole planet, and so the center, the issue. And finally, I think, and also this is why I like it so much to be here, that uh, the problems that you can have in cape town or in general in africa are of course specific but at the same time you can find out everywhere the difference is that here they are more clear and more evident so in some way uh, what can be invented here could be very interesting for everybody everywhere Mm.
1: they say? I'm not sure what the quote is exactly. It's something in Latin, something about always something new out of Africa. Um, But I was at the World Design Capital exhibition at the Cape Town Stadium just yesterday where they had some fantastic things. But in your view, as of somebody who has seen things that can work and that have potential to work, can you give us some examples of where design and environment have worked very successfully that you've seen here?
3: Uh, well I, I I cannot talk about the exhibition that you are mentioning now the specific one that is in the stadium because I've been away for three weeks and arrived <laughs> a few hours ago so I have not seen that one I've seen the one that has been uh, proposed uh, one month ago in the framework of this uh, open design festival and uh, there were uh, many different uh, projects and those projects was uh, really very uh, very much related uh, as i said before with a very large interpretation of design and in that case with very strong social uh, implications and uh, the the interest was the way in which they tried to uh, to put in place what uh, in my view is very important and uh, here is clear but it's uh, becoming a very important strategy for design for sustainability everywhere that could be called as a kind of radical incrementalism that means that you have to intervene at a very local scale at a very small scale but introducing some element that changes the rules of the game and this could be involving people in rebuilding their own shack for instance it could be, this is one example in introducing uh, uh, solar energy in a distributed way it could be something related to organizing some cultural activities and uh, some distributed uh, uh, art exhibitions in the houses in this, uh in these slums and uh, and so on and so forth you've seen that i mentioned uh, something that have a common denominator they are per se small things but when you see all them together and they are linked they in some way prepare to one of the main uh, character of what uh, now we I think we know about uh, what could be a sustainable society that should be based on uh, not of big uh, plants not of uh, big things but much more a distributed system that means many little things connected that is not uh, very far away from uh, kind of going back to the past and to the village It's uh, to use maybe something that comes from the past, but in a framework that is totally uh, updated because it's related to the connectivity that today we have.
1: Yes, interesting concept that we need to maybe go back to the past, where there was a great deal less of everything. Do you? I mean, when I think of when you think of the word sustainability, it's a lot to do with uh, you know using the right materials, uh, job creation, but is it also to do with reduced consum- consumerism? I mean, do, do you feel that maybe? We just need a whole lot less.
3: <laughs> oh, yes. Th- this is uh, one very big issue. <laughs> I think that goes beyond uh, the time that you have for this interview. Uh, l- let me try to summarize at the maximum. I think, uh, as everybody knows, that in general, our society, the planet society, so in which there are the Africans, but also the American, the Canadian, the Italians, have in average to reduce uh, the footprint so this is uh, one narrative that we have to do and to reduce the footprint means to enrich something else would be to enrich the um, variety of the ecosystem because sustainability means variety of the ecosystem so I like I think that we have to have a positive way of saying what we want to do so I prefer than saying we have to reduce something to say we have to enrich the variety of the ecosystem, and to enrich the variety of the ecosystem, we have also to reduce the consumption. And at the same time, I think that uh, really a revolution has to happen, and I will say in some way it's happening, to be positive. Uh, That is to switch from an idea of well-being based on the physical goods, that in this way, if you talk about sustainability, mandatory you have to reduce them, Toward uh, a recognize something that at the end of the day everybody recognize that the quality of life is uh, to have a family, to have a friend, to have a good environment, to be in a safe environment, to go to have good relationships. So the, the shift is uh, in the meaning of what does it mean to well-being toward these re- relational goods they are saying. So the quality of these things. That happen because we have good relationship in between us and with the environment, and by this point of view, it could be abundant. Mm. <laughs> so we can have uh, where if we uh, consider our well-being on the basis of the physical goods, they, we cannot avoid to talk about reduction. If we talk about uh, this kind of quality, relationship, family, neighbors, uh, uh, healthy environment, and uh, so on, and uh, safe environment, uh, they are not limited by the environment. They, they could be abundant. We can imagine a future that we can have more. So I think that uh, the overall story about sustainability has been based on this idea of reduction that in some way make it uh, difficult to really uh, make it the beginning of a new civilization. So, And I think that if we consider, by this point of view, uh, Africa probably is uh, much more advanced than uh, Italy and United States. Mm.
1: Well, there's something to think about, Professor. It's been fascinating <laughs> and uh, look forward to more of what you have to say and, and do enjoy the rest of your stay here and get some rest. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you us. to you. Good it's night. a pleasure. Good night. Professor Ezio Manzini. And uh, if you'd like to hear a little bit more what he has to say, he is going to be one of the speakers at the World Design World Design Capital Design Policy Conference. And if you'd like to know more about that, check their site, which is wdccapetown2014.com, wdccapetown2014.com. I really like what he said there about we need to have a healthy relationship between ourselves and the environment. It's so simple. The Enviro Show. But isn't it so that sometimes the simplest things are the most difficult? Well, next up on the Enviro Show, we're going to have our forage item today, looking rather less literally at the growth and production of a particular foodstuff, which is what we usually do. Going to be looking more at the big picture around it, it being World Food Day, and what more important foodstuff for us to be discussing right here in South Africa, where it's probably one of our biggest staples. I think is maize. Well, Peter Johnson is with a climate system analysis group at the University of Cape Town, and his focus is on climate risk in agriculture, and I think he does work with maize on the food value chain, so probably just the right man to talk to Hi, Peter.:
4: Hello, Nancy. How are you doing?:
1: Happy World Food Day. Thank you very much. I'm well.) Thank you. Um, The climate system analysis group just been looking at your website where you seem to have a focus uh, on all sorts of things There's a whole lot of uh, interesting little things that you've got going on there. Your particular focus, however Is on climate risk and agriculture right across the board all agriculture?
4: Well, yes, Nancy um, We look at at really what climate risk has in store for agriculture and and really it's about communicating the information that we know and um, finding out what farmers and and um, producers in the maize value chain and other food value chains really need to know and communicating information and not just about uh, current climate risk but about future climate risk as well and it's a crossover between um, production and food security and the the whole value chain and in in economics and and everything I suppose so we're really just trying to liaise with farmers about current climate and future climate.
1: Yeah, that's the word future that's a little bit scary. I mean already it's bad enough, you know, certainly for for many farmers as they're already suffering to, to sort of imagine how it's going to be. I suppose you've got to look at the trajectory and think it's it's only going to get a whole lot worse or 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 is it?
4: It's going to get uh, different. Um we definitely um when we think about the future climate. we think of increased temperature that's that's pretty certain but when it comes to rainfall things are are less certain and there there's some areas where the guys are saying well, actually we could do with some increased temperature we could do with some more sunshine we could do with some more heat units but other guys especially in the western cape are saying well actually not um, increased temperature and the possible reduction in rainfall that's in the offing for the western cape is really not good but if we look at the maize region I think the biggest threat is and we were talking to farmers today the biggest threat in the maize region is increased temperature and also the increasing variability of rainfall where we'll we're seeing longer dry spells, more intense rainfall and these are things that farmers are feeling already and and we just expect that to get a whole lot worse in the future. So it's not all bad but there are certainly going to be very testing and 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 um difficult times ahead for farmers that and you know, if they're prepared to adapt, if they're prepared to do something about it, then they can generally stay ahead of the curve. But we've got to be careful that uh, the situation doesn't, doesn't get to a point where marginal areas just won't be able to grow maize anymore.
1: Um, maize region, I kind of fondly thought that anybody could grow mealies in their back garden. Are there particular areas where maize thrives a whole lot better? And what, how tolerant a crop is it? It's a,
4: it's a fairly tolerant crop. Um, you need to have a, a, a certain rainfall. There's a what we call a phenology, which is a sequence of events that happens during a maize plant's life. Um, you know, where it grows and it flowers and it pollinates and then it's seeded and it's um, what we call a grain full and, and it has certain requirements during that that uh, life phase or that phenology, like that, need to be met with certain moisture requirements and heat requirements. It's fairly hardy, um, but it is definitely, uh, it needs a lot of water. It needs mm-hmm. rainfall. It has to have rainfall at the right time, and and this is the challenge. Now, the Maize region is traditionally defined as the, uh, I don't know, you call it tetrahedron or the Maize quadrangle or the Maize triangle, which is sort of Bloemfontein, Maffeking, um, Folluenskruen. Bethel, uh, yeah, Bethel in the east and then back to Blimpfontein. That's the sort of area where commercial maize happens on a large scale where people can get the yields that they can actually produce, uh, produce a profit. And, um, you know, those yields vary, um, but they're all subject to to market price. And, and mm-hmm. that's the problem right now is that you can't sell your maize at the price that it costs you to to produce it. And that's the scary thing. So even though we've had huge maize Surpluses this year, people can't sell their maize at a profit.
1: Mm, that was going to be my next question. Is that? I mean, I say that it's a staple. Is the demand growing all the time, and is the demand greater than the supply? It's it sounds.
4: No, South Africa has produced a surplus for for many years now, and and in fact, neighbouring countries depend on us for maize, and we export to to overseas as well. So, of the maize production, and this year, I think we had thirteen million tons of maize. About 60%, let's say 50% is used for human consumption. And we must remember that we have two types of maize. We have a white maize and a yellow maize. And there are only really one market for white maize, and that's southern Africa, where people use it as maize meal, and Mexico, oddly enough, where they use it for tortilla flour.
5: Mm.
4: So white maize is exclusively grown in southern Africa. And 50% of the maize grown is used for human consumption in terms of maize meal and associated products. Then there's yellow maize, um, which is the sort of sweet corn maize, which is used for cattle fodder, and that's a world market, um, that's what's exclusively grown in the States and in other countries like Brazil, the yellow maize for cattle feed, and then there's about 10% of production which is used for industrial uses, which includes maize starch, which if you look in most products, you'll see there's maize starch, but it's also used in industrial applications for glues and fabrics and, and all sorts of processes. So um, it's a staple food, but it's certainly much bigger than that. The maize value yeah. chain is huge. The, the value of maize in the South African economy is enormous. So we're looking at the, the impacts of climate change on that whole value, maize value chain, which not only includes food, which incidentally we are seeing fewer people actually using maize as a staple because there's a shift to wheat and rice.
1: Yeah. Yes, I was wondering that. I was wondering if the the human consumption level was maybe dropping. Um, So the the value of it is enormous to us here in South Africa, both the white and the yellow mazes. And if rainfall is getting less in some areas, I suppose the next question has got to be, are we going to start messing with it? I mean, genetically modified maize, is it an inevitability if we're going to be able to produce enough?
4: So, it's a very touchy subject, and all depends on who you talk to. Because theoretically, you're not supposed to eat anything that's genetically modified, and that, that's the way things go. So, genetically modified maize is widespread, but one kind of hopes and thinks that that's going into feed, so it's indirectly being given to humans. Um, there's a lot of resistance. If people knew they were eating GM food, then they wouldn't want to eat it. So. The uh, farmers are definitely using GMAs, and the GMAs has got advantages where it can be drought-resistant or pesticide-resistant. We're not sure about the nutritional uh, pluses and minuses about that. Um, There's a lot of emotion around it, and you speak to the GM people and they say it's completely safe, and you speak to the environmentalists and they say it's completely unsafe. Mm. Um, One would always hope that there'd be a way of producing a seed a hybridization rather than genetically modifying something but there's a lot of debate around that and as long as that debate is being kept open and honest I think that's a good thing so GM seed is definitely going to happen and it does have advantages and if it's going you know, into something like feed then one has got less objections although we've also been able to show that cattle grown up on maize are not the healthiest cattle and it's not the best kind of meat to eat One should be eating grass-fed meat and not maize-grain-fed meat. So there's a very complex ethical issue around it as well.
1: Yeah. You know, risk of wishing to overstate the case here, I read, um, just looking for information on all of this, that a staggering 96% of farms could be negatively affected by climate change. That's huge. Are we we going to see a lot of farmers going under? You know, how bad is it?
4: Well, if you speak to the professionals in the agriculture industry, they tell you that many farmers are really not uh, sustainable. In other words, you know, farms are, <coughs> excuse me, they owe the banks a lot of money and the banks control their crops. And that, um, you know, whether they're maize farmers or wheat farmers, that they really are probably not sustainable in the long run. However, farmers are a resilient bunch. And those that are doing well are doing very well and making a lot of money. So, Whereas we think that in the climate change situation, maize farmers could be affected. There are other variables as well. There, you know, you speak to a maize farmer and say, what's your biggest problem? He's not going to turn around and say climate change. Mm. There are many, many other problems that are facing farmers. But the issue with climate change is it's going to turn around and make marginal areas completely un, unsuitable for maize. But there are then other areas. For example, in some areas we've seen in models that the Eastern Cape is going to become very suitable for maize. So there are places you can shift to and where you might be able to grow grow maize better. But the the two big questions is will you be able to grow maize? And will maize still be the kind of crop that you want to grow given the market conditions and the prices you can get for it compared to prices that you could import it for?
1: Huge questions. Peter, we'll have to check to you again another day and maybe try and get some answers. Maybe open the lines because I'm sure if there's anybody who's a, a maize farmer or any sort of farmer listening, we we'll probably have lots and lots of questions. I know I have. Peter Johnson, thank you very much. Going to give out your website if anybody would like to know more. Doing some interesting stuff there at the uh, Climate Change Analysis Group. Is that right? Climate Change Analysis Group. Thanks very much, Peter.
4: Okay, good night. Take man. care.
1: Cheers. Peter Johnson, he's with the uh, climate Systems Analysis Group, sorry, Climate Systems Analysis Group, it's csag.uct.ac.za and we have put that up on our Facebook page if you want to check the link. Well, inevitably, I suppose, with as with everything that's to do with the future, the only way we're really going to be prepared for the changes that lie ahead is if we get onto it and start educating the next generation. Well, what was uh, supporting this by putting their muscle, inconsiderable muscle, uh, behind the evergreen project EduPlant? Or to explain what eduplant is we have on the line zinzi Mngolodela. she's head of transformation at Woolworths and uh hi zinzi hi nancy nice to have you with us were you able to hear a little bit of what our earlier guests had to say yes i did yes yeah, a little bit scary wasn't it
6: i know and it really makes um eduplant monster perfect
1: Yes, it does. You know, I, I suppose the, pr- the principle of EduPlant is that everybody can be a gardener or a planter or a small-scale farmer one way or another. But explain to us what EduPlant do. I know it's been going for some time, but what they do in your view?
6: Um, right Already the core of EduPlant, uh, Nancy, is food security um, and in, in a sense trying to find a way that will impart skills in our team. Obviously, the focus is even skills, and not just any skills, but permaculture skills, where we're teaching um, through the program learners and educators the best possible ways to actually grow food in the most sustainable. So we, we, we make the schools adopt permaculture principles, which are not only um, inexpensive, but also kind to the environment. So, but, uh, mm. To your point, Ella, I think that the most important thing is that then everybody gets involved in the school. And uh, one of the key sectors of the program is that the garden itself in the school becomes part of the curriculum where you can basically take any learning outcome into the garden.
1: Yes, it it, it sounds like a very good uh, theory. I mean, there are people who feel that, you know, school is for learning and, and gardening and farming is for other things. What's your take on that?
6: I, I think uh, for the 10 years that we've been involved, that World Trust has been involved with, Age of we've learned how those two go together very well. So Age of itself is um, stocked up as a competition um, programme where we watch schools coming up from emerging categories to advanced categories of the competition, right up to mentoring. What that means is that when they come in, they taught basic cultural skills. And as they progress, they, they encourage to get everybody involved. But to also integrate with the curriculum. That's where you see that you can actually divorce um, the, the garden from the class. So you can have your natural science uh, class in the garden. You can have your math. We've seen in the past few years also preschools coming through. And when I saw those kids, um, I thought, no, this can't be possible. But when you hear what they've learned in the garden, um, and that's appropriate and relevant in the class, it it, it really just merges the two, and it really gives you goosebumps. And then later on, as they progress, they also encourage to involve the community, the parents. What tends to happen a lot in the schools is that when the school closes, the garden tends to suffer.
5: Mm-hmm. But it
6: really mobilizes the community to be part of the school, and we've got uh, proof, and uh, some schools really feeding and becoming, in fact, currently 80% of the schools are using the projects from the garden to They their feeding schemes. It really is a winning formula. And they adopt other schools or preschools around them and donate the, the, the food. And furthermore there are schools who really sell and make money from, from the project. Yeah. So you can't really separate the two in as a bland that works not perfectly.
1: Just thinking, won't it be a wonderful day when all those schools are busy supplying Woolworths with vegetables? <laughs> just, just stop I don't, I don't know how long, um, I don't know how long Eduplant has been going. Quite a, a few years, and I'm just wondering, 20 years. how many? Twenty years. Twenty. Years, Gosh, yes. Eduplant has been going for
6: twenty years, and Woolworths has been involved for
1: twenty. Years. Gosh, I mean, one way or another, we should be sort of creating a whole nation of farmers. I'm just wondering, to what extent what those children have learned is impacting on their career choices. Given that they maybe have choices, um, would you know?
6: Yes, no, I think we, we when uh, these schools come up, uh, what we do in the in the program is we the best way of getting the stories out is through the competition. When they come up to the finals, um, we hear all of these beautiful stories of children understanding that food doesn't come from wood. It really comes from or oh, from any other retailer it comes from the garden and they have appreciation and love and passion for um and for where food comes from and and mostly where nutritious food comes from because the thing is with permaculture they put the the science behind food production. Yeah. they will know which plant gives nitrogen to the soil and which plant would mean that they are so taught to do companion planting and and also taught uh better ways of managing the garden without going um you know fertilizers artificial fertilizers and, and those kind of things. so we've seen the shift in the mindset, and we' have beautiful stories of um learners who come out and say, "I am going to do and teach, go go out of uh, school and into the city and pursue a different um you know a different career altogether." But also we've heard stories of learners who uh, who started gardens in their home. The thing is about culture also is the garden looks a bit chaotic because the focus is not on the beauty of the garden but yeah. the focus is on the science. So we're always intrigued by how they convince, you know, the parents at home that this is the right garden.
5: Yeah. It might
6: not look beautiful, but nutritionally is the best garden. And for the S, is actually the perfect part. Yeah. So the mindset shift and the empowerment that we see there is amazing.
1: Yeah, indeed. Well, I guess that's how gardens started, didn't they? I mean, our people were growing vegetables way before they were going pansies and roses. So, there you go, back to the uh, back to the way things were. Zinzi, thank you so much. I'm going to give out the website. It's a, uh, it's part of Trees for Africa, isn't it? www.trees.co.za. And if you go on there, you can find all the edgy plant info. If you'd like to support that, I think they could really do with all the support they need. Love the idea of a whole new nation of farmers, Zinzi Mngolo Della. Thank you very much. Take care. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Well, if you would like to know more about that project, Eduplant, being over going for 20 years. How's that? trees.co.za forward slash Eduplant and just have a look and find out all the details. Well, moving on next, we have another in our BioBullet series. It's actually number two in our BioBullet series. hope you're going to enjoy it. We've got another four or five, I think, lined up after this with Dr. Antoni Milewski of the website BioEdge. You might remember he gave us a bit of an overview of their biologically informative site last week. Well, today he's going to talk us through the biology of cancer in this Breast Cancer Awareness Month under the heading of his site on, which is called, A Perverse Revolution Back to the Primordial Derm.
7: Cancer is a most mysterious uh, malady um, that has really resisted uh, medical research and is, is essentially no more curable now than it was hundreds of years ago, um, and so it, it, there's an opportunity to think laterally. We really have to approach the, the whole uh, question of cancer from a slightly different perspective if we are to get anywhere, and here's an idea. Cancer behaves very much like a bacterial or fungal uh, species, as it were. It, it, it behaves like something foreign to the human body because it, it becomes semi-autonomous. It feeds on glucose, which is a very interesting aspect of cancer physiology it replicates indefinitely whereas most healthy uh, human cells have a built-in program of of voluntary cell cell death called apoptosis i mean most of the cells in our body willingly die at some point and that's how we control healthy cells whereas uh, a tumor has cells that keep on proliferating and growing until they kill us and what Anthony Mills and I noticed reading the literature was that there are some parallels, some strange uh, similarities be- between the way that tumors grow and the way that bacteria and fungi grow. And um, that's interesting because it's now thought that all animals and all plants were originally evolved from single-celled microbes and that the the, uh, the powerhouses in our cells called mitochondria, these little organelles that, that actually... Um, do the respiration and give us the power to live they are thought to be bacteria that have been colonized by um, some other early form of life and have become internalized as kind of tame or domestic bacteria as it were in order to do the bidding of the of the larger cell and that uh, all of life is therefore a kind of a symbiosis an evolutionary symbiosis between various kinds of microbes that have finally morphed into what we call you know Uh, animals including humans it's a funny thought that we're all conglomerations of what were originally microbes and that there's there's still a kind of a memory of that in the sense that our cells have the capacity if given the right food substances and 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 um starved of oxygen but they have the capacity to revolt and to go back to their ancestral ways as it were uh, which are not in our interests because those ancestral ways are you know cell division for its own sake and um... and and, and don't contribute to the to the economy that that is the the overall organism now in the case of cancer it's been known for years that if you um if you eat glucose if you eat sugar um, the cancers instantly grow and if you deprive the patient of sugar then the cancers can't really grow so cancers are utterly dependent upon glucose as a substrate for growth which is very microbe-like and and that insight suggests that one of the better ways of controlling cancer it's quite a simple way is to make sure that you don't eat um, glucose now you may think well glucose is a very fundamental food and there's no real substitute for it because glucose is what you get when you break down both uh, starches and proteins but there's a a thing called the ketogenic diet which is is essentially based on um, oils and fats as a source of energy for the human body and when you combine a diet with uh, oils and fats a ketogenic diet that produces no glucose that can be fed into the tumor with um, a regime of oxygenation you have the potential maybe for uh, new therapies in cancers because if there's one thing a a cancer cell um, does not like uh, it's a regime in which there's no glucose and plenty of oxygen You know, like most microbes, um, cancer cells shun the oxygen. Oxygen essentially rusts uh, microbial cells, at least bacterial cells. And so the idea is that with our modern diets and lifestyles, perhaps too much sugar in the diet, not enough exercise and so on, we have a regime in our body which tips over somewhat towards too much sugar circulating in the blood and too little oxygen circulating in the blood. And that... In some circumstances that can tip these um, human cells over into a kind of a revisiting of their uh, deep and distant microbial past that if allowed to get out of control manifests ultimately in a tumor but what what in in theory should stop a tumor completely in its tracks is simply denying it any glucose by eating fat and ensuring that it's oxygenated by um, maintaining the the oxygenation of the blood
1: well, there you go. I don't just learn something new every day. And uh, that was Dr. Anton Molesky of BioEdge. And if you would like to check their site, it's explorebioedge.com. Explorebioedge.com. But don't forget, this show is podcasts. So if you want to hear that all over again, indeed any other bio bullets, check it out on the website www.safm.co. So then go down to podcasts and find yourself the Enviro Show well finally on the enviro show tonight we have a green goodie and our green goodie tonight is a very simple little bar of soap it's soap made by environmental activist dr yvette abrahams who's actually making the soap i think in her kitchen, cooking it on solar power with biogas using ingredients like buhu, lavender, rosemary, beeswax and all sorts of other things. Well, We've got her on the line to explain all. Hi Yvette, nice to have you with us.
0: Hi Nancy, how are you?
1: I'm well, but I have to tell you that I'm sitting with a little bar of your soap in my hands here and it looks for all the world like white chocolate and I'm thinking thinking I could just eat this, but of course I can't, (laughs) or probably I could and it wouldn't do me any harm, it would just clean me up from the inside.
0: might taste a bit odd. It
1: might be a bit weird. <laughs> um, Yvette, how come you are now making soap? You're an academic, you're an environmental activist, you've been a gender commissioner, you're all sorts of things, and now you're making soap. How? Why? Um, well, Nancy, it, it,
0: it's always been on my bucket list um, and when my contract at the commission ended um, early 2012, then I had to think, well, it, it happened the same year I was turning 49 and I had to ask myself, well, what's left? You know, what do I absolutely need to do before I kick the bucket? And top of the list was soap. Um, I've actually made my own soap. I've been a home soap maker for about eighteen years. Um and and, and that comes of when I was at the University of Cape Town doing my PhD research. I spent a lot of time researching indigenous economic plants. Hmm. Yes, yes, that that um yes. And although I went many highways and byways over the years I've always had this this passionate interest in what indigenous plants can do for us and but, but from the perspective of development and of course, getting into climate change, and I realized oh i've been doing this all the time. I just didn't realize that this is what I was doing, as in low carbon fully organic um, you know short supply lines type of soap um so so, you know you can write so many policy papers and you can do so much research. but why this was really important to me not just to 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 fulfil you know a desire for soap, but to to say, "Well, sometimes you have to make things manifest mm. it's It's one thing to 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 write or to give speeches or powerpoints, or organize workshops around climate change. It's another thing to say, well, actually, people, we simply just got to live in a different way. Yeah. Um, And and sometimes, you know, the power of example speaks the most. So so if I now make um, low-carbon soap, I make it on solar cookers and biogas digesters, not in my kitchen, in my garage. Oh, okay. (laughs) It outgrew my kitchen a couple of years Mm. back. Um, Yes, yes, and the family got a bit tired of eating in a kitchen that was constantly full of, you know, batches of soap lying all over the place. So I make it in my garage, and and part of what it does, it gives me a chance to test all the different renewable energy things, different models of solar cooker, eco-efficient stoves, and so on.
1: Mm, Gosh, Uh, you really have been a purist. You know, we Mm -hmm. were talking to a gentleman by the name of Professor Ezio Manzini earlier, and he was talking about, you know, going back to the past, going back to the village, and I suppose there is a sort of village element of making your own soap. But you've been making it for 18 years. um, but in the old days, didn't they used to render down fat or use all sorts of weird and wonderful things? Now you're talking about indigenous economic plants. What were they using then? What are you using now as a sort of base ingredient?
0: The the Khoisan used to make soap from sheeptail's fat. There's a specific kind of sheep breed called the fattail sheep, and 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 they would they would render the fat from the sheep and and. They create something you call tallow, and they make a very fine soap from that. It lathers, and because it contains lanolin, it's very gentle on the skin. But they also made soap from lots of other things. You know, the olive tree, for instance, is native to to South Africa. Um, although for for some really odd version, it's it's called um, the African. The European olive, the African version, but it is indigenous to this part of the world. And whenever, wherever Khoisan settled historically, you'll always find a certain group of trees planted around their dwellings, and the olive tree was one of them. So olive oil soap is if you, I, I think the one that you're holding is a Buhuane olive oil soap, which is then a very ancient and extremely traditional soap. Um, there, there, there's, uh, there's certain oil-bearing trees, there's one of the ones is, is, is a waxberry, that's the first one that it used to grow oh, as locally as Stellenbosch and Pal. as recently as the 1880s, but obviously as cities spread, um, these, these plants began to disappear, and, and particularly pet- petrochemicals, um, after the Second World War, we stopped making soap from natural materials at all, and we started making them from, from oil. Um, Mm. Uh, yes, um, mm. yes. The, the conventional soap that you will buy in the shop is is made from petrochemicals. I mean, even things like vaseline and uh, well, it's petroleum jelly, yeah, right? Yeah. It's all, um, and that pretty much put paid to most of the most of the so- uh, soaps made from indigenous plants. Although, Waxberry you still get people in the far northern Cape doing maybe candles with it, or you know, a body lotion or something.
1: So it's bit, uh, yeah. yes. Yes, no, it, it explains the line on your website that says save our skin save our planet. So what you're putting into your soap it's okay to put onto your skin as opposed to other things that you know could be really quite harmful. Just going back to apart from the ingredients you mentioned that you are cooking them on solar power making it with a bio da- biogas digester have you got all that technology sort of set up? I mean, how have you worked that?
0: Yes, yes. No, it's for many years since, Well, let me not say many, but 2010 had the solar water geyser installed and, and then from there, you know, trying out bits and pieces of renewable technology. Um, I, I can't afford the really high polluting stuff like a full-on electric solar PV, although if you people buy enough soap, hint, hint. Yeah. <laughs> and that will be next. But but, but it's, because part of my work is working with, you know, say women in rural areas mm-hmm. or women in townships to promote renewable energy, I always think it's really important to test it myself. And and, and so, you know, that's how I've, I've been working my way through different models of solar cookers. Um, I had a certain model of biogas digesting installed, and I'm not very really happy with that model, but rather that I'm the one that suffered and that I go out in the communities and I promote it, without having tested Yeah,
1: it. yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. That that my my last question then really is going back to that. Your purpose of doing this aside from the fact that love it and you know walking the talk, is it to teach other people you mentioned working with rural women, is it to teach other people how to do it? Do you give workshops? Or is it purely just to keep making it and loving it and selling it?
0: Oh no 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 we work with a number of NGOs and most climate NGOs, women's organisations, HIV AIDS and you know, slowly but surely, we we're setting up women's co-ops to distribute the soap. Um, so it's you know, there's things around women's entrepreneurship, um, capacity building, job creation. We we're the 2014 winners of the SEED Awards, which oh. is great. Yeah, that was great, great fun, um, and and a uh, you know, major gist of, of recognition because you you do get times when you think oh, I'm a little bit crazy, but the United Nations Environmental Programme saying, well, actually, you're not crazy. Yeah. Um, and we really like what you do is is great and and part of the justification why they gave us that reward was around the so the triple bottom line environmental but also there 's a social impact and yeah. and so i 'm having the time of my life um you know, it's, I've learned from experience that you can talk to people about climate change forever, and many people just switch off. But when you can say to them, you know what, it makes money, it creates jobs, yeah. it improves the quality of your daily life. Um, so saving the planet isn't anti-development or hard work. In fact, it's just improving your skincare a little bit. That works. So yeah. when you work with community, you've got to do what works.
1: Well, there you go, and it certainly <laughs> works if you slip a little bar of, of this rather divine soap yes, into somebody's yeah, hand, it certainly it's, works. It it's called, is it Koi Life? Is koi that? Life, that's koi is life. exactly what it okay. is. Okay, and if anybody would like to check your website, it's koilife.com. That's right,
0: www.koilife.com. And if you want to order soap, you can email us, CoyLife at gmail.com.
1: Okay. And we'll see that you get it. And we have put a link up on our Facebook page. So there it is. It's all there. Dr. Yvette Abrahams. Thank absolutely you. Absolutely fabulous. That. Thank you so much. I'm <laughs> going to eat the soap now. <laughs> <laughs> Blessings. Thank you very much. I'm sure we'll speak again. <laughs> okay. Thank Thanks you. very much. Yeah. Dr. Yvette Abrahams, KoiLife.com, K-H-O-E-L-I-F-E dot com if you'd like to find out more thanks team thanks very much kim winter and derek fordice and i'm nancy richardson standing by in the wings with a wonderfully clean face i'm sure is stephen kirker hi stephen yes
7: um, i'm also so peach because i'm a west ham supporter we like to blow bubbles sorry just uh, completely left of center thank you nancy just gone 10 o'clock we're there about uh, with you until midnight for thursday's nighttime music but let's get the news first